It's great uh, hanging out with younger. Ch Hello. <laughs> it's great hanging out with um, younger people sometimes, particularly uh, as my godchildren have grown up. They have a way of um, kind of hearing songs and kind of questioning, kind of, what's that about? Um, there's, uh, I, I, just remembering, sorry, I started. We we uh, we were we were having we had a sermon this morning theme on holiness and and I started the service with Isaiah chapter six and it talks about the train of his robe fill the temple we sang that song about the train of God and I was thinking my Godchildren would be like what's God got a train for in heaven <laughs> like is it steam engine or electric uh, it doesn't define it I was singing it and thinking oh yeah Pushchkov kind of thing but um, anyway that was an aside entirely Heavenly Father um, thank you that we. Uh, we're here together. Thank you for your words in scripture. Thank you. Lord, in, in our time together, we are serious about you, but we're not so earnest that we can't enjoy and laugh and celebrate. Give us such a deep perspective that we hold so closely to the things that matter and gently with the things that are superficial. Help us to know that which is truly important from that which is mundane. And I pray that in the scripture reading and in the, the message that I've the privilege to share, there would be nourishment and help, comfort, strength, reassurance, and greater clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn, if you have Bibles, devices, or want to follow on the screen. We're going to read just a short few verses from Daniel. It's the, we sort of see him as a prophet, um, and it's in the prophetic section in, in our Bibles, in the Hebrew Bibles. He wasn't necessarily seen as a prophet, but he um, teaches some good stuff. So in this the introductory few verses in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 1 and verse 17. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. If you're into Star Wars, you know, I know Paul is, he's going, oh, Star Wars. Uh, if you're into Star Wars, you know when the Star Wars film starts and, you know, the, the cinema goes black and, and there's those little stars and then that flying space writing comes through. Chapter 4 or chapter 19 or whatever on. And uh, it sets the scene. It says, you know, it gives you a bit of a historical context. It's a bit like that. It's saying, you know, the emperor was dead and, the, you know, all that. Daniel and the, the prophet, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. To us, they're just kind of dusty figures from history, but these are key players, superpowers, and it roots what we're about to discover about Daniel and his friends very much in a time and place. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple. 
These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of his of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And verse 17, these, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. I always am slightly mystified about sometimes in the Bible. We, we often hear, when we hear about Daniel's friends, who are they? Yeah, you've learned the Babylonian names. But Daniel doesn't get stuck with his Babylonian name. I mean, I mean, he kind of is recorded, or the book kind of records it as Daniel, not Belshazzar. It's not the best name. It sounds like a burp, doesn't it? Belshazzar. <laughs> but his friends kind of get stuck with the Babylonian names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Just interesting, isn't it? And someone I was reading recently uh, made the point that it was likely, you know, we, we think of these guys as, well, they're described as young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, all that. Kind of bright sparks. Uh, they, the comment was made, and we can't prove it either way, really, but the comment was like they, they probably were eunuchs. They were in being taken from Judah and as kind of uh, forced migrants uh, of being trafficked, modern language, of being put into service of this king. It's likely they were, they were castrated. I mean, he was, they were serving in the harem that many of the officials in those days would be. Can't prove that. It's just an interesting thought. Doesn't really matter. Matter to Daniel, I guess, but um, there we go. It's, can we have the PowerPoint? Living in a fallen world, Daniel 1. So much of Daniel uh, is, is full of God and the cha later chapters kind of have this all bit, this, these very complicated, um, complex prophetic pictures, apocalyptic in their, and, uh, in their nature. But we're very much rooted in the beginning of the story to remind us where they start, where they are, and it's not where they'd want to be necessarily. It's where God put them. And I've kind of called this talk not that, creatively but um, living in a, in a fallen world and it's right that we remember that I mean we know that Look, you know the stories you know where we live we know what's going on in our world but the Bible isn't kind of pie in the sky or Disneyland or fairy tale it's very very real and that's why it's so insightful and helpful 
William Wilberforce. There we are. William Wilberforce um, was one of the great social reformers. Maybe you've seen the, the film Amazing Grace. He was a member of parliament for 45 years and uh, was one of the most influential in that time in the movement for the abolition of slavery. And he also was a committed Christian. Uh, he converted, he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus a few years after he became an MP in uh, Westminster. And he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, after a struggle. And he sought advice. He went to talk to a, a saint, a, a Christian that he knew, and that happened to be this former slave trader, John Newton, who was then, by then, older and was an Anglican minister, and you know the hymn that he wrote, Amazing Grace. And Wilberforce was struggling because he knew that if he became a Christian, he must be fully at God's disposal. And he thought, as he recognized his life and his role and his privilege and his status in government or in, in the Houses of Parliament and all of that, he thought that it would mean giving up his friends and his job and leaving his political arena. And he was kind of thinking, am I faced with a choice between Jesus and the world? And there was something in him that, that kind of struggled about that. But there was something implicitly that he wanted them both. John Newton wisely said and urged him not to cut himself out of the present circles or retire from public life. Thank you for that wisdom of John Newton. Two years later, Newton wrote to him, it is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. Meshed together. Wilberforce took Newton's advice, stayed on in politics, even though many other evangelicals of his time shunned public life as worldly. You see, very often we, we, we have this struggle and this idea of combining commitment to God and living within the struggles and the structures of the world. It's tough. It can lead to ambiguity. That little phrase, the struggle to live a faithful Christian life in a fallen world. It is a struggle. And um, the easy solution is one that, that many followers of God over the years have opted for. Even back in Jesus' day, have you heard of the Qumran community? No, some. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. They were quite uh, astir when they were discovered in pots and jars in caves, and it turns out they, they belonged to what was called the Qumran community, and they were a, a group of uh, faithful, committed Jewish people who kind of saw the influence of Rome and saw the legacy of the exile and saw that the, the temple worship wasn't really how it was doing. It was kind of corrupted and there was power and the Sadducees were, were um, kind of sitting close and cozy to the Roman rulers and kind of making some compromises on the edges and the Pharisees were really zealous and pointing fingers at the Sadducees and, and, uh, and they were praying and hoping for... Um, kind of political liberation and, and God to be revealed. And then there were the zealots, kind of the, uh, the people who were likely to get you into trouble by being near them because their authorities would come and arrest them, um, stop and search, all that stuff. 
So the Qumran community thought the best way that they can please God and be true to their faith is to go way out into the desert, buy a patch of land, build a place, and shut the door on all the messed up ones. And there in their community of believers, they could be true to their faith, separate. In church history, the Desert Fathers, uh, those monastic recluses, and they, they kind of got a little bit more and more bonkers. They started off by going and some of them kind of lived in dwellings as little bit hermits and you know, they'd wear camel underpants and, and all that. And, and then that wasn't good enough, so they took their underpants off and, you know, and that sounds weird, doesn't it? But they, and then they thought houses and hovel, you know, these hovels weren't, were too good for them because they had to abandon all the kind of structures of life so they went to live in caves and, and some of them even went to think oh who caves like luxury it's like that sort of that sketch you know oh when I was younger you know kind of I ate coal for breakfast you know there was that kind of view and some of them kind of went to this really bizarre extremes that they kind of lived on top of pillars you know they would climb a pillar and sit on top of a pillar and be monastic recluses, and people who came to listen to them would have to come around the edge and call up to them as they lived on their pillar. I mean, David Blaine has done nothing new. If you remember that stunt that he pulled. Part of the, of the move of the Pilgrim Fathers from Plymouth over to America was to leave messed up England, go and start afresh, go and start as a community of faith because... Christians are all brilliant, aren't they? If we only could just hang out with believers, we wouldn't have a problem in the world. You mean we couldn't do that? I mean, it would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? We'd be have people breaking the glass to leave before long. We see it all over the Amish community in the USA of... of um, separating out of rejecting kind of the advances of society sometimes for kind of understandable reasons but living in a time warp the 1960s uh, as an expression more recently of don't be in the world no cinema no dancing no pubs in an effort to remain pure and holy and go to the bible study and go to church three times or four times on a sunday that's the way to honor god to withdraw, but at the expense of being in the world to shine and as a witness for Christ. I don't know if this is putting two two together that shouldn't be. And there's lots of social and societal factors, but interesting, isn't it, how the church withdrew in the 50s and 60s and how the acceleration of what we would perhaps describe as godlessness increased as the church withdrew. I know there's the Second World War and all that. Not into belittle all that, but there's a whole bunch of factors. And yet Daniel tells the story of four people who lived and worked in an entirely unchurched, ungodly, not only kind of um, a pagan culture, if I can phrase it like that, but way away from anything that they would call their support structure of their faith. And they prevailed. There's lots to help us with. You see that God is um, sovereign even when evil triumphs. You see, in the Star Wars beginning of Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiachin and all that, it actually starts on a really bleak note. 
because we're not so up on our Bible knowledge and our ancient history, um, shame on us. Uh, let me just give you a little thing. Jehoiachim was the king of Judah. Good, got that. He was the king of Judah. And Judah was the southern kingdom. If you think of the map of Israel where Jerusalem is, there was a little patch where Judah remained. The northern lot, that kind of stretched to the north, 10 tribes had got defeated by the Assyrians about um, 200 years before this. Completely obliterated. But Judah, the southern kingdom, had kind of partly because Jerusalem was there and the temple and their conviction that that was where the holy place was and that they were being true to their belief and trust in God, they were kind of rescued from uh, the Assyrian Empire. But um, this belief kind of formed that they were a little bit invincible. And because they were God's people and because God had rescued them back then and because actually God had chosen them, God wouldn't let anything happen to them. I mean, they remembered the story of the Exodus and history and the raising up of David and Solomon and the promise to, to David that we call the Davidic covenant where God has said, I will be your father, you'll be my son and there will be an everlasting covenant between you and the kings. And they kind of thought that nothing would happen to them, that they were invincible and impenetrable and God would come up trumps in the nick of time. And then this superpower raised up the Babylonians in what is kind of modern Iraq. And Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, who were renowned for being brutal and horrific, as were the Assyrians, and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And in the midst of that siege, Jeremiah the prophet was a real thorn in the side because they were, you know, they were in trouble. And Jeremiah kind of was saying, just open the doors, you're going to get defeated anyway. You know, why... Why prolong the problems? You know, you, God, this is God's plan. You know, you're going to get stuffed. I'm colloquial language here. He had it slightly more technical than that. Uh, you know, the, the, what is happening isn't just that this bad man has come and God's going to rescue, vindicate you in the end. This bad man has come because actually there's a corruption at the heart of you. And this exile that is going to happen is a result of your disobedience and wickedness because they're not living faithfully. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are part of the, of the instrument God is using for his purposes. And that just didn't figure in their mindset because they're thinking, well, we're God's people and God's always going to protect Jerusalem and this is where he dwells in his temple and he, he can't, you know, it's a matter of honor. Well, Jehoiakim was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it was a huge shock. I mean, more shocking to them than the, the planes of flying into the Twin Towers of corporate PLC America and of all that that stood for. You know how? That, I mean, it was an awful, awful thing. And at the Pentagon, I mean, that smacked right at the heart of their national identity, and this more so. We have that little phrase that some of the temple furnishings, some of the articles of the temple of God were carried off and put in a, a temple of a, of a God in Babylon. In other words, 
as Exodus reminds us in the morning, there's a power play often in what is going on in Exodus of God being raised up at Moses and said, I will set my people free. And there's this kind of conflict between the Egyptian gods and the, and, the, and the true God of Israel. And God again and again and again says, I am so much bigger and so much more than and more powerful than the Egyptian gods. And behind the scenes is this understanding, well, here's Yahweh, here's Israel's God, and here's uh, the, the Babylonian God and, and represented by Nebuchadnezzar, and who wins? Nebuchadnezzar. Not only is our national life destroyed, but it throws this huge theological crisis to say, is God dead? Has God been overpowered? Were we wrong to think that God, Yahweh, was the one true God over the heavens and the earth? Maybe it's that God of the, of the Babylonians because he's top dog at the moment. And they were put in the temple of Marduk. And the, the bright and the best of, of Israel were, were taken to Babylon. Zechariah uh, describes Babylon as, as wickedness itself. It was the center of this worship of this much detested God, Marduk and Bel. Even um, you know, these, uh, maybe Daniel, this is why Daniel um, avoided the name Belshazzar, because the name of the foreign god is in the title of, that he was given, the bell. For Daniel and his three friends, it starts in the book of Daniel as a hugely bleak time. The rug entirely has been pulled out from under them. Where is God? Where is the one that in ages past we could say, yeah, we're, the, we're the, the majority, we're the force to be reckoned with. We're the ones you know, who call the shots culturally. How do you live when no one else believes? Where is God? Where is the one who is meant to protect them? Where is that one that we put our hope in and, and say, God will protect us. He'll, 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 right in the nick of time, like a superman, fly in and pluck us as we're falling down before we fall and smash into the rocks. But Daniel and his friends and the nation of Israel, they'd hit the rocks and it had gone splat. Where is God? Where is God when evil prevails? Where is God when, I'm sure there was much trumpeting of, where is your God now, Israel? You're so called God, blasphemy, abounding, mocking. Oh, you thought you were the ones, the chosen people. Stupid. It happens so often for us in disappointment with God. Bad things happen to good people. We live with great faith and some catastrophe overcomes us and we're kind of thinking I thought I'd earned some protection God like a spiritual bouncer just recently I was talking to someone who'd been hospitalized and was in kind of a lot of discomfort and suffering and pain and wasn't what they expected and, and voiced that question where is God I'm, I'm, he's let me down Talking with a young person just this week who's gone through a lot of ridicule at school and, and we're praying for this, this, young, this young girl and I just felt the Lord give me a little bit of an impression on what she'd prayed and she'd prayed and cried out to God and, 
and God hadn't answered the way she'd wanted and she felt that God must not like her or just let her down and her faith had kind of crumbled somewhat because she'd, she'd hoped and she'd been let down. Wasn't what she'd expected. Where is God in a world? Where is God for those people in Japan and Ecuador when their houses have collapsed? Where is God for the hundreds of refugees drowning, often Christians, in the Mediterranean? Where is God? Where is God in the incessant increase of those who seem to be opposed to the ways of God and his people? Open Doors reminding us in the World Watch list that persecution, you know, they're still top 50 worst persecutors, but they're getting more severe in their persecution, even with Christians praying. Verse 2 has a really interesting comment. We've heard in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it, surrounded it, conquered it. Verse 2, and the Lord delivered, did you notice that? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into into his hand. Very interesting take, isn't it? It wasn't that, oh well, the battle went badly. Daniel knows, even when it's apparently going the wrong way, the Lord is still enthroned. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim over. God delivered him. Astonishingly, at the start of Daniel, we're, we're told that God is claiming responsibility for the defeat of his people and the desecration of his house. I've let it be. What we see here is the expression of a strong belief by the Jews in the sovereignty of God and it, that even when evil seems to be in control, actually God is still and working out his purposes, even if it seems entirely mystifying to us in our time and place. God isn't overthrown. God isn't vanquished. God is remaining faithful, isn't dead, isn't ignoring, has a mysterious way that often we don't understand but still is trustworthy. So the challenge of faith, as I, as I prayed for this young girl and said, we're praying for you still and as you go back to school and you're being teased and hounded and harassed and she's only 14, bless her. And your heart goes out and she was crying and saying, God's with you. For the lady in hospital who said, this isn't how I expected it to be. Keep trusting. Sounds easy to say. So, so important. The Daniel in these opening chapters reminds us that faith means being faithful and trusting God. It's what faith is, to keep on being faithful and trusting in God, even when it seems evidentially not so. Think of Jesus as not just as our great example, as the Lord, but in the garden of the Gethsemane, your will, not mine. In the midst of the suffering and the pain and the crying out and the torment of that long night, dark night. Coupled with the ongoing horror of his arrest and betrayal and torture. Final breaths on the cross. Even where are you, God? You've forsaken me. horror of that moment and yet 
Amazingly, in the quiet whispered breath recorded for us, as Jesus breathed his final breaths, into your hands I commit my spirit. A cry of faith in the face of overwhelming, crushing evil, in the maelstrom of all that was going on on Good Friday, seeming to consume and to devour and to spit out the Son of God. To your hands I commit my spirit. Faithfulness. Faithfulness that trusts even to the end in the redeeming, victorious, vanquishing almighty God. See, Christian faith is like that. Caris tonight, I was talking to her in the week, she's gone down to a church in Bournemouth and she's being given the subject of a Christian response to ISIS. And she's like, I don't know what to say. I mean, what do you say? Neil, dear Neil, this week, last week, spending eight days in a a refugee camp in South Sudan with a hundred odd thousand people. The call to remain faithful and persevere, even in the midst of a fallen world. Because if our lamps stop shining, where's hope? A Christian uh, writer put this, tomb thou shalt no longer hold him. Death is stronger, but life is, sorry, death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. Faith and hope triumphant say Christ will rise on Easter day. See, the role of the church is, is to be a faithful witness and, uh, and to take an uncompromising stand for God, even to the extent of its members laying down their lives. The picture of Revelation, which has so many parallels with Daniel. The blood of the Lamb, which purchased them for God, was not only shed in one historic event of Calvary long ago, but continues in a derived sense to be shed in the death of every martyr, every sister and brother who dies under the persecution that is brought against Jesus. When the Roman uh, Romanian church leader Joseph Tson was arrested and interrogated by Ceausescu security forces, an officer threatened to kill him. Tson told the officer, Sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Sir, you know my sermons are all over the country on tapes now. If you kill me, I will be sprinkling them with my blood. Whoever listens to them after will say, I'd better listen closely. This man sealed it with his blood. They will speak ten times more loudly than before. So go on and kill me. I win the supreme victory then. The officer sent him home. Son was right. The supreme strategy of Christians against all the powers of evil is not to spill their enemy's blood, but to point to the Savior and by extension to shed their own if called to do so as they follow his example. I came across a while back this this um, photo, this not photo, this painting. And it's painted and it's representing a time of slavery and oppression in America, not so long ago. And it speaks of slavery and servitude. It speaks of hard work. It speaks of being bowed down a menial living. But there's something about it that, that captures something actually quite powerful and strong. 
I think it's the hands. I think it's that grip on the cloth that is, is one of strength. You see it in the, the black spirituality in the American spiritual songs that were sung in the heat of in camps of slave trading, of amazing grace. To the river I'm going. Oh, happy day. I mean, you know that one. Oh, happy day. I started singing the other day, it came on the radio, and, and uh, one of the young people that was, I was with was like, what are you singing? I've never heard that, said Manson. I said, it's a really powerful song. I couldn't do it justice with my white English voice. Martin Luther King said this, even if they tried to kill you, you develop an inner conviction that there are some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And if a person has not found something to die for, that person isn't fit to live. Living in a fallen world, in the story of Daniel, God is in control behind the scenes, seemingly absent in the opening verses, but very, very much present. God knows what is happening. Even in that faraway land, even when everything of the outside trappings of the faith was stripped away, Daniel and his friends said, yeah, even in that place when we're being taught a language and a culture and writings and Procedures that are far, far, far from what we would hope to be living in. We will remain true to him in faith. The Lord knows what is happening and even the trouble his people are facing and enduring under horrific regimes even now. It's easy for us to say here, but I pray it would be true in my life in every day no matter what circumstance comes to know and trust that God is God and I'm in his hand and my call is to be faithful even in the difficult situations. Even when it means being in a small minority in the workplace or on the street or in the community that we live in. To remain faithful. To not compromise and set ourselves just as. But to live amidst Trusting him. See, God's sovereignty is the theme of this story in Daniel. It's the theme so much of scripture. That in every book, in Job or in, in Exodus or in Esther, where God is even, isn't even mentioned once, yet he is directing and working out that his glory should be seen. In Revelation and in the height of persecution of of the early church and replicated again and again and again the reminder to look up, to look out, to look beyond the present and know he is alive. In many ways to look back and see the cross and draw strength and courage from what happened there. Again and again the story of the church through history that we probably should read more of and listen to more about is a testimony of faithfulness under duress and yet the Lord, the Lord bringing light and hope and glory and change even as the wine is pressed and the grapes are destroyed. Maybe that's not for now in your circumstances. But I pray a remembrance of this in the coming. Or maybe it is true for you in whatever's going on. 
trust in him. That you've not gone far beyond his presence and his ability to be close to you. He's with us always. In every situation. Close at hand. I pray we'll remain faithful. I pray from the faith and the comfort that we have in many ways in our life. In that place we would cry out and intercede for those who are being hard pressed and stretched. And on the cusp of is it worth it? To pray strength and that reminder and that growing conviction that God is sovereign, that God is control, even when everything else seems to be falling around. Talk to Abby about her workplace. It's astonishingly complicated in a law firm. God is in control. As I know some of your stories in the recent past, He is faithful. God bless you. Alan.